And so this evening, I'd like to continue in our studies in the life of Abraham, and I'd like to look at verse 2 to 6 with you. If you can recall, last time we looked at this chapter, we looked at verse 1, and when the Lord revealed himself to Abraham in a vision as he slept, and he revealed a further part of his character and his promises to his servants. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And we recalled how comforting and reassuring this was, these promises, um, and how saints through the ages have taken up these promises. We looked at David in the Psalms, who was quoting how God was his shield, and the Apostle Paul in his letters to the New Testament church. And these promises, they continue to apply to all those who have placed their trust in God to this day. Abraham's situation at this time, as you can see here, was that he remained childless. He'd made some powerful enemies in the previous chapter, uh, kings from foreign lands who had invaded it. And he was very fearful and apprehensive about what lay ahead. And apprehension about what lies ahead is not a situation that was unique to Abraham. It's a concern that faces the whole world. People are often asking, what does the future hold for me, especially perhaps at this time of year? Will I be able to cope with what lies ahead? In what manner actually should my life be lived? Um, Is this life all that there is? And if not, what lies beyond the grave? And these are vital questions that we must all consider. Um, Too often in our society, with all the entertainment and the music and the noise, many people actually fail to seriously consider what lies ahead in the future. But some people do. And there's a variety of answers out there. Um, The world says, um, for example, there's nihilism, that's atheism, that it's all pointless, it's all meaningless. Um, We can't help you live your life, just get on with it as best you can. And then there are religions that say, do your best, maybe try your hardest, deprive yourself of this, and you have to have a blind faith that all will work out to be all right. But the word of God is entirely different from all these solutions. The Bible offers us something that is entirely unique. It not only teaches us how to live our lives whilst here on this earth, but how also to come into relationship with a holy God so that we are prepared for the life to come. And one such passage in which we can find this teaching really quite clearly is in Genesis chapter 15, and particularly in verse 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. And that is going to be my text for this evening. But before we come to it, let us just look at the preceding verses, verses 2 to 5. This is my first point, and I've entitled it, Abraham's Burden. The Lord had just revealed these promises in verse 1 to Abraham. And now Abraham... He unburdens all that was troubling him before the Lord. Now, perhaps to the casual observer, we may wonder what could be wrong in Abraham's life. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to understand why he was so forlorn and desperate. He was fabulously wealthy. He was one of the most powerful men in his region. Melchizedek, the great high priest, king of Salem, had just blessed him as a fellow believer in the name of the Lord. He just got these fabulous assurances and promises from God in verse 1. What more could this man of God want? 
Well, verse 2 shows us what was troubling Abraham. Lord God, what will you give me, seeing as I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, for us living in the 21st century, we might struggle to fully understand the implications, other than the emotional aspect, perhaps, of what it means to be childless for a married couple. But for Abraham, there was this whole issue of honour, the Society of Ancient Mesopotamia. It was preserving the family name and lineage. It's quite alien to us today. And we also have to remember that back then, well, it wasn't even a country, it was very a nomadic society, so there was no welfare state, there was no social security, and the privileges in hospitals and care for the elderly that we often take for granted. And so this helps us to understand why Abraham, despite the reassurances he had received from God in verse 1 about his future, don't be afraid, Abraham, he remained worried and anxious about all these old questions and heartaches that had been with him from a long time before. His want for a child and a son, it stemmed all the way back to when he'd first married Sarai, that emotional pain as they'd tried for a child and they'd waited for her to fall pregnant and waited and waited until it slowly dawned upon them that they would never have children together. And they'd learned to live with this as best they could until Abraham was 75 years old. And then the Lord had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. That's where the story of Abraham begins, end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12. And he promised Abraham, get out of your country, I will show you a land, and I will make a great nation of you. Abraham understood then that he was going to have a nation from him, that the Lord God would give him an heir. And so at the age of 75, this long yearn for desire for a son was reawakened. And we go through chapter 13 and chapter 14. The years had ticked by, and Abraham remained childless. Um, There's a saying that goes, it's only hope that hurts the most. And so Abraham was in this position now. He was hurting. His hopes had been raised, and yet he was still childless. And he accepted everything that God had said to him in verse 1. But he clarifies his position before the Lord as he understood it in verse 3. He says, look, you've given me no offspring. You promised you would. Indeed, one born of my house is my heir. In chapter 13, verse 14 to 16, Lot had gone eastward. And the Lord God had reappeared to Abram at this previous time. He'd made... He'd expounded on his promise for a child. In verse 14, he'd said, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Verses 2 to 3 are Abraham's doubts regarding the promise of an heir and his own security. In effect, he's asking the Lord, did I understand you correctly? You said you'd give me descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. That promise was a long time ago, and nothing has changed. 
There was a massive distance between the promises of God and the realities in which Abraham was living. What we have here is a man who was contending with his faith as it faltered in the grim realities of life. Abraham was a faithful man. He desired to see God's will done. God had promised something and therefore he wanted God to be honoured and to see his name glorified and honoured through the fulfilment of his promise. But as he looked, he just could not see how this could come to pass. He'd considered his circumstances. He and Sarai, they were now approaching 100. And they were very unlikely now to have a child, naturally. His nephew, Lot, he'd left him again. he just rescued him, and Lot, it seems, had gone back to the city of Sodom. And so one who stood to inherit everything was Eliezer of Damascus. He wasn't even a blood relative, he was just a servant. It was very common practice in ancient Mesopotamia for those without children to adopt a slave. And then that slave would become responsible uh, for doing the duties of a son. He would care for the son, for the couple rather, in an old age. He'd see to their burial and that their mourning would be um, held correctly as tradition was following their death. And then after their death, he would inherit everything. Abraham, by the looks of things, he'd gone, he'd not quite gone maybe as far as setting these things into motion that would lead to Eliezer being his um, heir. But he had considered them as a last resort. He was a man who was desperate. And what did he do? Well, he came before the Lord and he asked him, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing as I go childless? And this is one of the tremendous and often underused privileges that the believer has, to bring their burdens and their difficulties and their anxieties before the Lord. Too often we resent challenges and difficulties that come before us in life. And instead, we, instead of bringing them before the Lord, we look to our own solutions, we look to what the world says you should do in this situation. Or else we can become sullen and bitter and full of resentment against God and complain against him. There's a vital distinction here that I'd like to make in how Abraham came before the Lord. He didn't come complaining. He didn't come accusing God of breaking his promises. He came in faith. He came and said, Lord, I don't understand how. I don't understand how you can keep your promise I need you to help me. I need you to reassure me that my faith in you might be strengthened. It's a sin to come against God and complain against him. But it's our privilege as believers to come and ask him, Lord, I don't understand your ways. Help me, please. And it can be one of the hardest things to do. Because our adversary, the devil, he does his best to present us from coming to God for comfort. He sows that bitterness and that doubt in our minds. But what we must do when we have these questions about the difficulties of life is bring them before God. Matthew Henry said this, he said, We are able to state our grievances to God. It is ease to the burdened spirit to open its case to a faithful and compassionate friend. And just see how lovingly and graciously Our Heavenly Father accommodated Abraham in his weakness. He came to meet him where he was. Verses 4 to 5 is his response. 
It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Here were two further promises to Abraham found within God's answer. The child would be from his own body. It would not be a slave of his household. And his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Abraham's name, it would be great. And the blessing would be far greater than anything he could understand. It was because Abraham had taken his burdens to the Lord that the Lord was pleased to reveal to him the vast scope of his promises to him. I read that apparently there are more stars in all the galaxies than there is dust on the earth. Um, But we're not to take this as a literal number that Abraham would have trillions and trillions of descendants. What it meant is the Lord was saying there would be a great and innumerable host of people of who you would be their father. It was actually a spiritual promise um, that all... Abraham would be a spiritual father to all those who believed. It's in Galatians 3, verse 7 that we see that. Um, if you want. Therefore know only that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So there'll be literal descendants, the Jewish people, and those who are of faith who are also the sons of Abraham. And so... This is a reminder to believers that while we're here on earth, all things, whether they be moments of happiness or difficulties, are done to increase our dependency upon God. Jeremiah, in the 32nd chapter, and verse 17, he knew what it was to suffer, and yet he took great comfort in this thought. He says, Our Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. And so we're told, Abraham considered what the Lord had just said to him in these two verses. And then we come to verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. All that's just gone on before in this chapter is an introduction to one of the most key verses we find within Scripture. It's a verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, which we read earlier, Galatians 3. James quotes it in his um, letter in chapter 2, and Titus actually alludes to it, and I think it's in Titus 3. This is the core message of the Bible. It's the way of salvation. It's the way in which a person is saved from their sins and can escape eternity from the judgment of God. This is God's grace in this verse. And it's always been this way. We see it in the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. And so I would like to spend the rest of our evening together just looking at this verse. And I'd like to dissect it and break it down into two parts. Um, Firstly, we'll just look at the first part. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. So we'll look at Abraham's belief. Now, the definition of definition of belief is to accept that something is true. When we're presented with a statement of truth by somebody, a discerning person will always try and establish certain principles before either choosing to believe that statement as truth or to reject it as a falsehood. And firstly, 
we must always consider from what source or person this statement comes. I think this is particularly relevant in the moment. If you read the news, there's lots and lots of coverage about misinformation and fake news. Where does this source and this evidence come from? A statement from certain people in society has far greater authority than it does from others. So, to give you an example, sadly, many people do not trust a politician's promise. But apparently those in the medical profession are deemed to be the most trustworthy. And this is what Abraham did. He considered who had made the promise. He considered who God was. The one whom the Bible tells us is the great I am. The unchangeable, the eternal, and the sovereign Lord. The one who is so full of majesty that we cannot behold his presence and glory, that we cannot understand This is the Lord who, in Genesis 1, created the whole heavens and the earth. He spoke it into existence. And the one we're told later on in the scriptures upholds all things by his word. This is the God who has no limit to his power. The God of righteousness, the God of truth. The one who can never lie or go back on his promises. This is the God who had revealed himself to Abraham in the end of chapter 11. And Abraham accepted all these things about God's character by faith to be true. And he took great comfort and reassurance from who God was. This isn't the beginning of Abraham's faith here. In Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 10, we reveal, it reveals to us rather when Abraham um, was first brought into faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise for he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God and so this isn't the beginning of his faith but what it is In verse 6, is Abraham reconsidering these truths about God, which he knows to be a fact, his character. And the results are that his faith was strengthened and his spirits were lifted. We were reminded last week by Ian, um, when the Lord appeared to people like Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Look back upon my character as these people are revealed to. I am still the same as I was to them as I am today. So Abraham considered who God was. But then he did that second thing, which, again, we must all um, consider if someone presents before us a statement of truth. He considered the authority by which God made these promises. If somebody says something will come true, it's only right to consider if that person has the authority to enact that promise. So, as an example... An estate agent is not in a position to sell you a house unless he is given permission by the vendor. If he promises to sell you a house without their permission, then that promise is worthless. So Abraham considered God's authority. If you recall at the end of the previous chapter, he'd met Melchizedek, king of Salem, and preached God most high. And in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 14, it says this... um, 
Melchizedek's blessing. Blessed be God of blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And in response to this we're told Abraham gave him a tithe of all. This tithe was Abraham's acknowledgement that God had delivered this far superior force of these kings under Shedelioma into his hand. The sovereign Lord who created this whole earth has the power to intervene and to do according to his own will as he pleased. Abraham considered God's authority and knew that he was able to give him a child even though it was impossible. And so as he considered these things, his life, we're told, he did not stagger and come to a stop as he looked at his own body and the barrenness of Sarai's womb. He looked to God, and through this, his faith was increased. He trusted and believed in God's word. It wasn't a wild stab in the dark, I'll take my chances with this. Abraham's belief was a statement. It was a statement in his trust about God and who he had been and who he would continue to be. Romans 4, that passage we read earlier, the Apostle Paul put it like this in verse 20 to 21. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. His knowledge of God had led him to this position which he was now in, in this foreign country, blessed by all this great wealth. And this is what made his faith in God so great, because he applied what he believed to his life. His actions and his thinking were governed by his belief in God. And so as a result here, when he reconsiders these things, he once again, he submits his life to God's will. And so this is what we learn is a believing faith in God. It's an utter submission to everything that he says, everything he's revealed, however unlikely it seems from an earthly perspective. It's... The thing that separates the Christian from the man of the world. Abraham could live now with a confidence and assurance in God. His life was firmly grounded in God's promises. He absolutely knew who God was and what he promised would come to pass. And this is a big contrast, isn't it, from the man of this world. You've probably heard that phrase and the hopeless optimism that we cling on to in this world. I'm sure everything will be all right, or things will work out well in the end. It's not based on anything, is it? It's only based on sentiment and the desired outcome for people. But the Christian whose life is submitted to God's will, who believes that he is there and will bring all things to pass according to his own will, can go into this world and live a confident life. Um, In 2 Timothy 1, 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Through this trial of faith, God was teaching Abraham that the important thing in this life is not to know what is going to happen when it will happen, but to learn to live in a way that when things do happen, it doesn't matter. If he had to keep waiting patiently, it didn't matter. The Lord God would bring things to pass in his own good time. And so Abraham had to look at the world around him. He wasn't to be concerned by what he saw 
or what people thought or how they understood things. God's word was all that he could rely upon for his hope and his security in this life and in the one to come. And through the word of God, which we find in the Bible here, God is calling all of mankind to believe in his ways, to believe what he says about himself, about his righteousness, his justice, and all the other characteristics we mentioned earlier, and also to consider the things which he tells us about ourselves. We have been called as mankind to believe in his plans and his methods, the way in which he is going to save people to bring them back to himself. We are called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners and to believe that through his sinless and perfect life we are released from the burden of the law and that we can be made pure in God's sight. This is what the message of the Bible is. And however hard and unlikely it seems, however ridiculous it seems to those around us, we are called to believe in God's provision for our salvation. And it's not a blind belief. We're not left without evidence of his authority. We are given um, the authority of God's word through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. So that as 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20 say, The promises of God are in him, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God. And so... The gospel is found in this message that I put before you. It's a complete committal to the way of God. It's to believe upon him with your whole being, to base your whole life upon his truths and upon the fact that you believe his word. There is nothing that glorifies God more than belief in him and what he says. And there's nothing that goes against God more than unbelief. As the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 3, verse 18, it's the sin of unbelief that all will be judged for on that final day. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so Abraham believed in who God was. But then let's finish by considering the second half of this verse, verse 6. Look what God promised to do because of Abraham's belief. He accounted it to him for righteousness. Romans 4, 11 puts it a different way. It says righteousness was imputed or credited to Abraham. Now to understand and fully look at the righteousness of God is a vast topic and we can barely scratch the surface with the time we have left here this evening. But the essence of what righteousness is to God is a life that is pleasing to him. A life that is pure, a life that is without blemish, one that a holy and perfect God can um, choose to dwell with. And yet the Bible tells us that we are sinful creatures. The Ten Commandments and Christ's teachings tell us of our guilt and tell us that we fall so far short of this righteousness that God demands. Our sin, it ruins us, it keeps us and takes us further away from what we should be. And if we think otherwise, we only deceive ourselves. So then here we have the message of how we can be made righteous, how we can be reunited back to God, how we can be freed from our sin and the guilt of it. 
To have this righteousness, it's not by doing anything, it's not by going somewhere. God's righteousness is accounted exactly how this verse says it is, by doing what Abraham did, believing in God, by believing in his ways and his methods. Let us not forget, I think, that Abraham, as he believed in God, he only had a partial image of all the things we now understand with the complete word of God. It's the first mention we have of righteousness in the Bible here. Um, We have a massive advantage, don't we, of knowing the complete word of God, something that the Apostle Peter says we, uh, the saints of old, long to look into and understand. But God's righteousness was accounted to Abraham. It was a work of grace. Um, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It wasn't something that he'd done that merited it him. He'd rescued Lot and all these poor hostages in the previous chapter. It wasn't that. It wasn't because he was wealthy and influential and God only comes for those who are wealthy and influential and nicely middle class. Nothing to do with that. His righteousness was only because... He believed and trusted what God said to him. It was this simple faith that led God to saying, you are now seen as righteous in my sight, that I'm going to take your sins away and I'm going to place them on another. Isaiah 43, he dwelt upon this in the 25th verse of Isaiah 43. The Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And the canon of scripture is very consistent in its message. Hebrews 11 underlines it, that righteousness always comes by faith in respect of the person of Christ. It's by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well-known passage in Romans chapter 3. I'm sure many of you know it off by heart. Verse 23 to 26. It says, the Apostle Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Although Abraham lived thousands of years before the Lord Jesus Christ, his belief was also in him. He didn't fully see him and understand it as we do now, but... The writer to the Galatians says this in chapter 3, verse 16. Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Abraham saw who Christ was in a limited way, and he believed upon him. And the righteousness which he received is the same for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call this, in Christian theological terms, justification by faith alone. 
And there has been no other doctrine that has been attacked so fiercely and so much down through the ages. You only need to know your secular history, um, Martin Luther and the Reformation, Sola Fide, justification through faith alone, as he fought the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church, who said it was along with faith, uh, along with traditions and good works that you were saved. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Pharisees were always raising these objections, it's by the law and good works that you're saved. Um, in John 8, when he was contending with them, their argument was, well, we're Abraham's descendants, it's who we are, we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? It's by faith in him. Paul and James had to write to the early church. They wanted to bring in circumcision and all these other traditions. These are, we do not need these to be saved. You need faith. Our works are not required. What we need is faith. It's not the law that makes us righteous, but it's God's grace. And this is the simple but glorious truth that we find in this sixth verse. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him as righteousness. And so I hope we've seen this evening that Abraham's life was governed by the things he believed in, by what he understood. He utterly submitted his life to God's will and to everything he said. And because of that, he could go through life with reassurance and comfort that those who do not believe in him cannot have. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, really. We're living in very uncertain times Do you have the same comfort and reassurance and relationship with God that Abraham did? Do you bring your difficulties before your Heavenly Father in prayer? Do you ask him to explain things to you and seek comfort from who he is and his promises when you are troubled and perplexed? The next time, God willing, we look at this chapter together, we're going to see how the Lord God then revealed to him more promises about the promised land. And he made an oath and a promise with Abraham Um, he bound himself to him but for now we remember that belief in the Lord Jesus belief in the Lord the evidence of it is seen in Christ Jesus and his death and as we celebrate his coming to this um, world and his birth we thank God that he did come so that we might see that his way is trust and that we are not believing in vain